Blog Talk Radio. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. All right, everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of The Remnant Call, and I just want to say thank you for everyone that was praying for me. I know we missed last week's show. I had gotten a stomach bug, and uh, I posted on Facebook, and I uh, appreciate you all praying. I'm doing much better. Uh, I knew it was kind of that week in between, and uh, well, I did as my my wife would have said. I, I, I sissied out, and I, and I took the evening off, and so... Praise the Lord. I'm back. I'm feeling good, and I'm excited because we've got a special guest coming on to tonight's show, and that is Joel Richardson from Joel's Trumpet, and we're going to bring him on. Listen, folks, if you didn't catch the last few episodes out there, please uh, catch them. You've got to hear. Listen, I've talked about this many, many times on this show, the importance of understanding the times that we live in. That is very important, but we have a job to do something about it we got to share the good news. We've got to be listening to what God wants us to do in uh, this hour, how he wants you to do, uh, because not every job is the same for every person. And last week, uh, we talked about the voice of the Lord and what that means and how to turn off what is blocking us from understanding what God has planned for us to do. It is important to understand the times, but if you don't do anything about it, if you simply sit and receive only and don't share, well, folks, you're, you're kind of wasting time. And we got a lot of work to do. There are lost who don't know that the Lord's coming in. There's a lost that don't know and understand the plan of salvation. And we have a job as believers to share that. Well, I won't delay any longer. I'm going to bring on our guest this evening. His name is Joel Richardson. His website's joelstrumpet.com. He is a New York Times bestseller, author, filmmaker, and teacher. Joel lives in the United States with his wife and five children. With a special love for all the people in the Middle East, Joel travels globally preparing the church for the great challenges of our time, teaching on the gospel, living with biblical hope, and return of Jesus. He is the author, editor, director, and producer of several books and documentaries, and is the host of the popular online Christian program, The Underground. Some of Joel's books are the new one that's about to come out and we're going to speak about tonight, and that is Mount Sinai, The True Mount Sinai Revealed. Um, the Shocking Truth About the Real Nature of the Beast, The Scriptural Case for the Islamic Antichrist, and what a, the Bible really says about Israel and the plan of God, and many, many more. You can catch them all. Just go to joelstrumpet.com. And with that, I'm going to bring on Joel. Joel, are you here with me tonight? I'm here, Frank. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I appreciate this. Joel, listen, I, I've been hooked on Mount Sinai ever since, you know, 1999 when I got to go down and go through the Wyatt Museum. Um, I had shared with you about my father's good friend was uh, really good friends with Ron Wyatt, went on um, some expeditions with him. Uh, it's something that some part of my family are very much interested in and excited about. And I had, you know, it's kind of one of those things that fallen off the radar a little bit. I've known it's all out there about Mount Sinai, but you know, some, some several months back, I saw some of your newest research out, and I just I got back into it. I'm hooked. I'm excited. I love biblical archaeology. You have been investigating about Mount Sinai, and I wonder if you could just share with our audience uh, about this new book that you have coming out and what brought you to, into this idea that you needed to go look and check out where the real Mount Sinai is actually located. Sure. So, um, you know, like you, uh, over the years, I had heard about some of the previous expeditions, you know, Ron Wyatt, Bob Cornuke, Jim and Penny Caldwell. These were the primary folks that had gone and investigated it back um, the Wyatts uh, in the 80s, Bob Cornuke in the 80s, 
and then the Caldwells throughout the 90s were going and just filming and taking pictures, and then they were sharing their information with both Bob and Ron, um, who had sort of popularized it, you know, sort of throughout the evangelical world here in the West, and, and this was pretty big deal back in the 80s and 90s, got a lot of media attention. Well, then you had probably 15, 20 years of uh, a highly critical response from different uh, scholars and archaeologists, you know, traditionalists and so forth. And so um, it was really, uh, really poo-pooed, you know, from the academic community, so to speak. Well, I had seen some brief, um, you know, articles and video clips of some of this over the years, and I didn't really have a chance to dig into it heavily. Um, but when I saw these, I was fascinated, and I specifically prayed, and I said, Lord, you know, if you could ever afford me the opportunity, I really would love the chance to go myself. Um, I'm not sure about it. You know, I haven't really looked into it. I'm always cautious whenever I see something like this, and it it seemed almost too good to be true, um, but nevertheless, I, I prayed, and I said, Lord, I ask you to give me the opportunity. Well, um, skip forward to the end of 2017. And I have a uh, a friend who's in ministry who works in that part of the world, and he said he had a friend who um, had visited and showed me some pictures. And actually, he had taken some pictures that I have not shared publicly yet, which are pretty fascinating um, images. But uh, we're, we're wanting to go back and get some some more pictures, some better pictures. But in any case, I said, hey, can you get me into the country? Now, Saudi Arabia is a very difficult country to get in unless you have a work visa. In fact, it's it's really the only way that you can get in is you need a work visa. And so he got right back and he said, you know, um, I can set you up to do some photography work uh, with a local company, just some basic promotional work, get your work visa. And so um, within a few months, um, you know, we were there. And, of course, once you're in the country, you're free to go, you know, do some tourism, so to speak, do some hiking and that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's sort of borderline in terms of where you go, but you can do that. So we didn't do anything illegal, didn't do anything, you know, fishy or anything, just for clarity. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we went and had the chance to spend uh, three and a half days exploring not just the mountain itself, but really the whole area, um, the town and just sort of that whole area around it's called Jabal al-Luz, al-Luz in, in Arabic, which means the Mountain of Almonds. And it's actually a mountain range uh, consisting of several peaks. And, um, you know, so beyond visiting it this entire year, I've just been completely invested in working through all of the evidence that this is the real mountain, as well as all of the critical literature, the critical articles. There's a million of them online as well as all of the scholarly literature. And um, I came away absolutely, completely convinced that this is the real Mount Sinai. And so this led me to uh, where, you know, most of the year I uh, was working on this book, where essentially all I did is I, I, I really just took all of the information that's been out there, much of it for years, I brought some new information to the table, and I just lay out the case for Jabal Luz or sometimes called Jebel Makla, uh, as the true Mount Sinai, um, you know, working through all of the scholarly literature, but laying it out in layman's terms in a way that anybody can understand it to wrap their head around all of the various arguments, the traditional, the historical, the biblical, the archaeological, the geographical, the geologic, you know, all of the above, laying it out in, in my opinion, a fairly a watertight case that this is indeed the real Mount Sinai. Well, I wanted to see if we could go through some of the actual things, because I know you were very skeptical, um, and it took really going over there to make you a, really believe in, in, in what you were researching into, that it was actually the real Mount Sinai. You got a chance to actually see some of the things that we never get to see up close. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the things, especially, you know, uh, kind of just to start off, if you could talk about you saw the split rock over in that area. And that's always I see that picture of you standing right there at the foot of it. I know that's not actually on Mount Sinai, but it's in the general vicinity. Uh, can you describe what you found when you went over there? 
Yeah, and so, you know, again, for clarity, this was something that was found by uh, the Caldwells. So this would have been about 1990, sometime in the early 1990s, mid-1990s. Um, I think Ron had suspicions that it might be on the west side of the mountain and uh, because he believed that's where Rephidim was. Rephidim is the area where the Israelites fought against the Amalekites. And so um, that was, you know, on the western side of the mountain. And it's quite far. I mean, it, it takes a couple hours. It's a, it's a giant area. Um, these, these are, this is a beast of a mountain. You know, you're talking mountains that are close to as tall as what you'd get out at, you know, Estes Park in Colorado. Um, you know, there, the, the elevation is not as high as Colorado, but the, the Denver is 6,000 feet um, above sea level already. So you're dealing with mountains that are, you know, from the base about 8,000, uh, 8,400 feet or so. So, you know, these are beasts. These are big mountains. So it takes a few hours to drive around to that area. And um, there is no question that, in my opinion, of all of the places to visit when you get there, there's the mountain itself. There's, you know, various altars. There's what we believe is the golden calf altar. You know, there's all of these things. Um, Split Rock, in my opinion, is the most just faith-inspiring, amazing things. And yet what's ironic about it is it's just a rock. I mean, it's a couple rocks. Um, But what you don't see, and this is what, you know, in the pictures that I had seen years ago, um, based on the pictures, I thought it looked like it was about a, oh, 15, 20, maybe 30-foot tall rock. Um, it's actually closer to 50, 60 feet tall. So you're talking, you know, five, six stories tall. This is, you know, it, it's a giant rock, and it's sitting on top of this hill, which is also about 100 feet high, um, just, a you know, a pile of rocks. And on top of it is sitting this massive, massive rock. Now, why is this important? Well, because when you look at the biblical description, the Lord says to Moses, he says, now, Moses, I want you to go strike the rock at Horeb. Now, Horeb is, in my opinion, and this is really uh, the consensus among a lot of commentators, that Horeb was the name used for the mountain range. And within this mountain range, the tallest of all the mountains was specifically known as Horeb. So this is very similar to today, where the whole range is called Jebel al-Luz, but there is one mountain in particular that is known as the peak of al-Luz, whereas Mount Sinai itself is, is the second tallest peak um, of, the, of the range. And so the Lord says to Moses, go strike the rock at Horeb. Now, if you go there, if you look at pictures, you know that there are millions of rocks, <laughs> you know. So in order for this made any sense to Moses, you had, there had to have been a rock, which was a very prominent landmark. This was a distinct identify. Anybody would have known the rock at Horeb, this thing had to stand out. Well, sure enough, you have just sort of just in a, you know, an ocean of rocks and hills and plains, you have this just giant hill and this incredibly distinct, again, six-story rock just sitting on top of this this hill, and then second, um, you know, in various places, but I think the most important is at the very end of Isaiah 48, where the Lord is talking retrospectively of when that rock was split, and he says, O Lord, in the wilderness, you clave the rock. In Hebrew, the word is baka. It means to split right down, to tear in half. You, You clave the rock in half. So we're looking, one, for a very prominent rock, I mean, that would really stand out from all the others, a landmark, an identifiable landmark. We're looking for a rock that has been split from top to bottom all the way down right through the middle, and it would have to be in the area on the western side of the mountain called Rephidim. Um, And so when you look at biblical descriptions of Rephidim, the place where Israel fought the Amalekites, um, this had to be a an area with a with a vast wide open plain where you know tens of thousands of people went to battle. Well, sure enough, the, this hill that the rock sits on is surrounded by a few planes. You can actually look at it on Google Earth, and uh, the the plain just this flat, open, sandy area. It's about three miles long. It's about a mile or so wide. I mean, it's a, this giant open plain, and it stretches out in a few different directions. 
And then, of course, Moses went up on the hill um, at night, and he had them hold his hands up in the air. And as long as his hands were up in the air, uh, the Israelites were winning the battle. So it, it also needs to be surrounded by some very tall around the rock. Well, you have every one of these features. Now, the rock itself, even if there was no historical or biblical significance to it, this would be a very unique uh, natural landmark. I mean, this is like, you know, Arches National Park or something. People would go here to check it out because it's, it's distinct, it's unique. And then on top of all of these things, when you're standing there at the base of the rock, at the base of the split, there clearly does appear to be evidence of massive water erosion uh, that would have come out of the base of the rock. Now, the whole area, the rocks have sort of the appearance of, you know, erosion. It's If you've ever been to Jordan in the area of Petra, the rocks have this sort of very unique formation. And so, you know, I allow for skeptics to say, well, that's that may or may not be water erosion, but it certainly does have the appearance that water was pouring out of the base of the rock um, and flowing down down this hill. You know, it's it's like you can sort of see where that had flowed. And this is an area that is one of the driest places in the world. You know, they get like an inch of rain every few years. So you have everything line up, and it's right next to the mountain that by all, you know, arguments should be Mount Sinai. And so I really do believe that this is the place. Now, let me just end this by saying this, you know, if you go to Israel, you go to Jerusalem, you know, you can go to any of these historical places, you can go to Capernaum, you can say this is, you know, this may have been Peter's house right here, Jesus may have stayed here, Jesus may have preached in this place, or Paul and the apostles may have preached here, you know, at the Temple Mount, these places are all fascinating, but for the most part, they've been built over you know, thousands of years, most of the actual places where Jesus' feet were, they're, they're 20 feet underground at this point, you know, built over by, you know, the, the Islamic Empire, the Ottomans, and then this, that, and the other thing over the years. But when you go to the see the split rock, it's just this pristine, virtually untouched place way out in the middle of nowhere in Saudi Arabia. And it's not simply a place where miracles happened. It's not where historical events happened. Itself is the miracle. It, it, is, it is this massive rock that God, by the power of you know, his hand, split this thing and then set it on a pedestal for the whole world to see. And of course, the rock, Paul says, represents Christ that was split for us. And it's just, in my opinion, probably the most miraculous uh, biblical historical site in the world it just it just oozes with you know awe-inspiring history and so i was gripped by it and um you know by the grace of god i'd like to go back and um we talked about saying well wouldn't it be great to uh you know bring in some some or oil um <coughs> excuse me to sort of survey it to shoot it with a um seismic to sort of see if you could identify perhaps a straw under the rock, if there's a place where the water could have come up, and this sort of thing with all of the uh, technology that we have these days, or to bring in some experienced uh, believers who are geologists to, to look at it and this sort of thing. But, um, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, I'm not sure what will come out in the future, but in my opinion, this is the actual rock that was split by Moses. And by the way, the local Bedouins call it the split rock of Moses, just if, if all of that information was not enough. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about, and I, I guess we could jump to that real quick since we're on that. And that is the, what the people around the area actually believe is there, not only with the split rock, but with the mountain area. You know, can, give us some of the background of what you found is actually the belief of the local Bedouins. Yeah, and so it's not just the local Bedouins, but really just all of the you know sort of Arabs that live up there in the Tobuk area. So you know I've got I posted a video clip, and actually um, if you watch, uh, let me say this too: Ryan Morrow has put out a film called Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. It's a free uh, short movie that's on YouTube, and uh, it's really going viral, making a big splash. And so you know I, we've been talking sort of along the way. Um, he was he had gone there a few times before I had over the past few years and um, had put this film together. And so I shared this clip with him that's in the film where I asked this young, he's actually, I thought he was a Bedouin, but he's actually a Pakistani 
uh, kid that lives and works for the Bedouins at the base of the mountain because um, he's, he's a little bit darker than the, the local Arabs. But I asked him, he speaks fluent Arabic, and I said, what do you call this mountain right here? And he basically points out and starts naming the names of the different peaks. And he said, this one here, and he pointed to some, what we sometimes call Jebel Makla, the one that we believe is Mount Sinai, and he called it Jebel Musa, which means the mountain of Moses. And I said, okay, so you're, you're saying this is not called Jebel Alus. And he says, no, Jebel Musa. This is Jebel Musa. And then he turns and he says, this one's called, you know, and he starts naming the names of the different peaks. And really, if you ask any of the locals in that, that area, they all believe it. There are a few friends, others that we know that have been there uh, multiple times over the past several years. And, you know, multiple stories where this is just, it's just assumed. It's just well known. You know, the local Bedouins, they point to some of the, uh, the sites in the area and they say this site right here was built by Solomon. Um, there was a sort of a, uh, a monument at the base of the mountain um, that was, they say, the pillars um, that are at the base of the mountain, which we can talk some more about. They say the pillars up until 1940 were part of this monument. And the locals said that it was a monument built by Solomon the Great, that he had actually come and built a monument at the base of the mountain to commemorate the fact that this was Mount Sinai. Well, they the Saudis apparently sort of dismantled this, uh, you know, this this monument, perhaps out of fear that the Israel the Israelis would want to come and take it or something like that. But remnants of it are still there, um, and uh, just outside of uh, about twelve fifteen miles from the mountain is an oasis town called Al Bid, and um, the other name for this town, it's really the largest town in the area, um, is Mugher al Shuaib. Well, what that means in Arabic is the caves of Jethro. So Shoaib is the Quranic name for Jethro. This was Moses' father-in-law when he was the priest of Midian. And of course, we know that Mount Sinai was just on the far side of the desert outside of Midian. And so all of the historical evidence points to the fact that this oasis town of Al-Bid, Al-Bid was uh, the historical uh, town or the, the capital of Midian where Jethro lived and there are caves there right in the center of town they've been turned into sort of this archaeological park and in all likelihood this is where Moses lived for 40 years and when you step out of these caves what greets you is this beautiful um, silhouette right in front of you on the horizon the contours of Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb or you know, Jebel Aluz, Jebel Makla, Jebel Luz. And, um, you know, so the locals call this Jethro's house for all intents and purposes. I mean, that's, that the, uh, that's the other name for the town that's 15, about 15 miles away from the mountains. So uh, this is not a secret um, in the area, you know. And so when you read the critics, you read these online critics, you read folks like Gordon Franz or David Roll or James Hoffmeyer, and they say, well, just sort of all of these gullible uh, American evangelicals, they've been duped by Ron Wyatt and these sort of um, amateur, these dilettante adventurers. You know, they, they use sort of the scholar speak to sort of denigrate and poke fun at men like Ron Wyatt or Bob Cornuk and this sort of thing. And I go, listen, the local Bedouins uh, have not been watching Ron Wyatt videos. Uh, now, maybe maybe in the past couple of years, they're starting to, to watch YouTube. But up until just recently, you know, the local Bedouins living way out. Uh, you know, I mean, you're talking way out in the middle of nowhere. They've never heard of Ron Wyatt. They never heard of any of these people. But there was a very well-established tradition. And what I do in my book is I show how this tradition is actually an unbroken tradition all the way back to 350 years before Jesus actually 250 years before Jesus into the 3rd century B.C., and that this was an ancient Jewish tradition. Uh, it was picked up by the Christians, and later it was picked up by the Muslims. And there really is this unbroken tradition that says that this is the real Mount Sinai. So this is, it's, uh, it's dishonest. The critics are actually dishonest in trying to cast this as this unique view um, that has been sort of uh, perpetrated if you will, by Ron Wyatt. It's it's a view that is much, much bigger than Ron Wyatt. Well, I, I'm very familiar with academia and um, the absolute 
basically if you don't have the degrees and you haven't studied it where they have studied, you're shut down without any proper review. And it, it's a frustrating topic to me anyways. Um, but I, I, I completely understand that. Um, to me, uh, when you were talking about the, um, the, the monument that uh, saw the tradition was that Solomon had built that, is that kind of what those pillars are? We've seen pictures on the ground of from, yeah, okay, so now right on the eastern side of the mountain, in the eastern valley, which is probably right where the Israelites were camped, um, there are several archaeological uh, sites right there. So first of all, you have a river, a dry riverbed that comes down the mountain. Well, that's exactly what the Bible describes in Deuteronomy. It says a river flowed down on that side. And right at the base of the mountain, right at the mouth of the river, is an altar. And the Saudis conducted an archaeological survey on this altar several years ago, and they discovered everything that you would expect to find if it was an altar for animal sacrifices. They found, <clears throat> they found animal dung and organic matter and bones and, <clears throat> and uh, basically charred, uh, you know, remnants and so forth buried under the ground there as if, you know, quite a lot of animal sacrifice had taken place at that spot. It has the um, the architectural features of what you would expect to find if it was sort of a corral where they were running these animals down to sacrifice them. It's right in the place where you would expect it to be if this was the mount, the real Mount Sinai. The Lord told Moses, base of the mountain with rocks that were not cut. They're not cut stones. It's just a natural, um, uh, you know, sort of 100-foot uh, angled pathway of sort of two different paths that lead up to the altar. And then right next to that, because it says in the scriptures, the Lord told Moses to set up 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel right next to the altar. And so there you have these round pillars. So now, you know, you would, you would assume that if this is the Mount Sinai, that these pillars were part of the, um, the these pillars that were erected by Moses, you know, to commemorate or to stand in the place of uh, the 12 tribes. And what Jim and Penny Caldwell have suggested is that when Moses, Moses was told to sprinkle the blood on the people, well, um, that's kind of a weird thought, if you think about it, that he was sacrificing these animals and splashing blood, you know, like a Catholic priest splashing holy water on the congregation, you know, splatting blood on tens of thousands of people. Um, what they suggested is that these pillars were erected to essentially stand as a representative of each of the tribes and that Moses would have sprinkled the blood on the pillars right next to the altar. And that makes sense. That very well may have been uh, what, what the, their purpose was. Now you've just got the remnants of these pillars. So um, could it be, you know, that these were the pillars and it's, it's very likely, it's very possible. Um, on the other hand, what the local Bedouins say is again, that up till about 1940, they were part of a monument that was there. It actually had a round kind of roof that was there, and um, it was almost like a little uh, gazebo type of thing that you could go under. Now, maybe Solomon went there and found the pillars and, and used the original pillars that Moses had placed there and turned it into, a, you know, again, a, a monument. So it could be both, but it's just interesting um, that they have these, they have these traditions that this was built by King Solomon. And, um, and interestingly, Ron Wyatt also um, believes that the, the sea crossing um, took place at Nueva, um, Wadi Watir, that's on the Egyptian side, and that there is a pillar on that side, this you know, ancient rock pillar that is standing, um, again, on the western side of the Red Sea, and that there was originally one on the other side as well and that that very well may have been placed there by Solomon. So, you know, if that's the case, then here we are um, back in the, I guess it would be the 9th century B.C., so we're talking several hundred years uh, or you know, close to several hundred years after um, Moses, but still several hundred years before Jesus that Solomon had gone and identified these locations and that today there's still remain some of the uh, the evidence that this was a, a well-known place um, to the Israelites. Well, you had mentioned uh, about the golden calf altar, and I know that you had been able to stand in front and take some pictures of 
what I had seen is pictures of um, different, uh, you know, hieroglyphs, um, the Egyptian bull god and things like that, which I, you know, I always thought that that was. Um, but you also found some other stuff too. Um, what makes you think though that the go- that you know which one is the golden calf altar, or you believe? Is- well, I mean, there's really only one option. So um, I'm going to say a couple of football fields away from the base of the mountain where Moses' altar is, there's this giant pile of rocks, and it has cows carved all over it. Now, there's another, um, you know, I'll call it mural that I stood right in front of and took some pictures, and that's outside of the fenced area. That's actually separate from this massive pile of rocks. This, this what, what would really be perfect, it's almost sort of a table on the top, and, um, you know, where, where the golden calf would have been placed, the golden idol would have been placed. And uh, it's also interesting, too, when you look at the biblical uh, text, it says, where Aaron says to Israel, he says, behold your gods. So he doesn't say behold your God. He sets up the golden calf idol. He doesn't say behold your God. He says behold your gods, which indicates that there may have been more than just the one um, you know, carved idol, which was most likely carved out of wood and overlaid with gold. Hammered gold would have been overlaid over the wood. Um, this is how the Bible describes the idols ha- as having been made and also makes sense in terms of when Moses burnt it and then sprinkled the ashes in the water of the river that flowed down the mountain, that it would have, its core at least, would have been made out of wood. So, um, but when he says gods, it indicates that there may have been more, such as these petroglyphs, these these um, pictures that have been chiseled into the rock, and they're they're clearly you know bovine. They're 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 bulls and calves, and um, so you know th- this this large area that's been fenced off by the, the Saudi uh, archaeological authorities, uh, they clearly understand that it's a very important you know historical archaeological site. Well, nearby is this again this mural. Um, of all kinds of cows, and it's got a few other things mixed in there, some ibex and different things. Well, you say, well, how do you know that they're Egyptian bull gods? Because Arabia actually has different bulls, you know, different places throughout the Arabian Peninsula where cows have been carved. So you could say, well, this could have just been, you know, sort of ancient cavemen at some point, you know, during the the bronze, uh, the early bronze period, or even before that, or something like this. Well, you have what's interesting in the mural that I took a picture in front of that's again, it's, you know, I'm going to say it's uh, uh, 50 yards or 100 yards from the actual golden calf altar. You have one of the cows, there's a person underneath it, and it sort of looks like the person is trying to, um, you know, do a deadlift and lift this bull over their head. You know, his hands are kind of underneath like he's lifting the cow up. Well, what's interesting is that if you look at a lot of the, um, the hieroglyphs and a lot of the art in Egypt, that Hathor, the god Hathor or Apis, um, you know, one was the female, one was the uh, the son. Um, but Hathor, uh, I believe Apis is the male, Hathor is the female. You have these these devotees, these worshippers of Hathor, and they're kneeling underneath the cow and they're nursing at the cow's udders. Um, and in some of the hieroglyphs, it is virtually identical to where you have this person underneath the cow you know, with their hands raised under it, and that's what they're doing is they're, they're nursing at the cow's udders. And so you have this uh, really identical um, imagery over here in Arabia. So this really points to the idea that this is whoever carved uh, these images. And again, they fall right, you know, even, you know, archaeologists that, that are skeptical, they admit that this falls within the window of the Exodus time frame, the uh, the mid to late Bronze uh, period, and um, they have these identifiers that these were people who had come from Egypt. They were familiar with Hathor worship, and there are other, you know, um, uh, I guess I'll call them petroglyph experts. And again, these are not um, these are not religious scholars, and they acknowledge that there is some uh, continuity between the spe- the specifics of these cows and some of the uh, images that you find in Egypt. So, you know, it is, again, once again, exactly what you would expect to find if this was the real Mount Sinai, that right there at the base, not too far from Moses' altar, 
pretty close to where the river runs down. Here is this massive, um, you know, it's probably a natural pile of rocks, and they probably modified it because the scriptural testimony says that um, Aaron built the altar. Well, that doesn't mean that he built it from scratch. I think in all likelihood there was sort of this natural pile of rocks, and then he sort of modified it and utilized it to make it the uh, the golden calf altar. Well, you'd found some things or showed that I had never seen before, and that was the um, the the pictures uh, of the archers. That was something new I had never ever seen before. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was really fascinating. Is um, you know, and this is what's amazing about this place, and this is one of the reasons that we are so anxious to see it preserved and protected, and to see it investigated by real archaeologists. We just want them to kind of fence off, you know, a 50-mile area around the whole place and just, like, because they're about to build this massive city, Neom, and we just want it to be protected. So as we got there, as we're walking up through this sort of central valley on the east side, um, I came upon this big sort of rock outcropping, I guess I'll call it, and there were these paintings. Now, these are not petroglyphs. Petroglyphs are carved into the rock. These were paintings of, uh, it was a mural of archers, a whole bunch of archers, probably 15, 20, 30 of them. And, um, you know, I didn't think a lot of it. I took pictures and I was actually texting it to uh, Penny Caldwell. And I said, have you guys ever seen these? And they go, we've never seen those, you know. And, and they're from, they've got their their thumb on, you know, they know they, the thumb on the pulse of everything that's going on. And it's sort of a small community, by the way, of all the, the folks that have been there. We're all communicating and sharing images and talking and and so forth behind the scenes. And she goes, what is that? I've never seen that. And I was like, well, cool. I just just got here and I just stumbled upon a new discovery. And it's all these archers. I sent it to my wife and she texts back and she said, well, that's exactly what you see in Exodus 19. And I was like, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Because it just, it had never registered. And um, so in Exodus 19, the Lord says to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to consecrate the people because in three days I'm going to come down on the mountain. And then he says, but I want you to warn the people that they are not to step foot on the mountain, that if either man or animal steps foot on the mountain, they are to either be stoned to death or shot through with arrows. And so, and then he says, and I want you to put up markers around the base of the mountain to warn the people. And so here you have this, this sort of marker, if you will, right at the base of the mountain with pictures of, archers, you know, clearly holding bows and arrows. And you know what occurred to me as well is that in order for this to have been enforced, uh, if indeed someone had stepped on the mountain, there had to have been archers stationed, um, actually stationed around the mountain to have actually carried out the execution, um, you know, if that were to take place. So this was essentially a keep out sign, a stay away sign. And it's interesting that it's hard to describe, but it was on these sort of, you're in this sort of plane of just rocks, and all of a sudden you have this this little little mini mountain, you know, this little mini hill. It's probably about 20 feet tall. And, um, and the paintings are sort of on the underside of it. So they have been protected from the weather, which is the reason they're still there. There's, there's probably many more of them at one time. And so in all likelihood, these were like little perches where the archers would have stood um, as a warning sign, not to, to the people who don't cross cross that valley and start approaching the actual mountain. And so again, it just validates the biblical testimony. And we did find, by the way, um, probably about 70 yards away, another small mural um, that was very similar. It was painted with the same type of ochre paint. And um, I haven't really shown anyone those pictures, but it's they're just sort of these images of these figures um, with these sort of square bodies, you know, almost looks like they have a big robe on or something. And I don't really know what they mean, but there's just several figures there. And, you know, regardless, it's, it's an interesting archaeological, uh, you know, something to be investigated. But um, that's just sort of another interesting little thing that I found. I really haven't shown it to any uh, experts or specialists, haven't really had that analyzed, really haven't had any of it analyzed yet. Um, but uh, hopefully it will be analyzed and probably criticized as well um, in the, the next several months. Well, I, I'm ex- I'm looking forward to it. Uh, two quick things left uh, I wanted to talk about. And then I want to talk about some things you got coming up here. 
um, and coming out. And that is the top of the mountain. Uh, I had seen a rock from the top of it um, back years ago, probably 20, you know, 99, I think it was. And I saw, you know, how dark it was and black and everything. Some people have thought that it was burned. Some, you know, something like that. God came down and, and scorched the top. What, what was your findings up there? What did you see of the rocks on top when you were up there? Well, the top of the mountain. Okay. So when you're there, it's very clear that the rocks consist of there are a few different types of rocks. Now, the vast majority of the rocks are granite, um, but there's a pretty crisp delineating line where they become no longer granite but basalt. Um, basalt is a, it's a volcanic rock, and it ranges from brown to black to blue to green. You know, it's dark. And um, so a lot of people, because this one mountain is, is black and all the others are not, you know, I think early on people said, well, that's it. You know, the fire of God came down. Um, the critics say, well, wait a minute. Um, how is it that that would have melted, whereas Moses himself was preserved and, and not burnt himself? Um, and I go, that's a legitimate uh, objection. And, you know, there's even places where you'll see seams of the basalt sort of running through the granite down below. So, you know, I, I'm not a geologist, and so I, I really don't know, but I don't, I don't credit that as a proof that this is the mountain. Now, I will say this. We did um, take a rock, uh, you know, just investigating, smashed it, and the center of it was granite. So, you know, you sort of had this, uh, you know, caramel core. <laughs> you had this light core in the middle, and the outside was dark, the dark material, and I don't know if that's a, a normal uh, you know, kind of configuration, if this was an ancient volcano at one time, if that's something that would happen, or if if indeed it is evidence that the fire of God actually, you know, scorched the mountain, if that's possible, uh, you know, perhaps it is. But, you know, it's just not my area of specialty. What I do know is it's basalt. Um, there is uh, someone that did have a piece, took a piece home and, and uh, had it analyzed. And um, so, I, you know, I don't, use that as one of the big arguments um, because I'm not sure about it. Um, maybe in time we'll say, hey, there's some very unusual um, things up here that make us ask what in the world happened. But at least based on the information that I have now, I don't make that a huge thing. It's, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting, but I don't, I don't credit that no, as a, a huge proof. We obviously want just to get to the truth, and, and that's exciting. I know there's some similarities in uh, between granite and basalt, but there's also differences um, in those rocks. Uh, the the one last thing that, to me, um, I the video of you sitting outside of what is believed to be uh, the cave of Elijah. Um, could you talk about that for a moment? It almost besides the split rock, it's the one thing that's fascinated me uh, for years. Yeah, well, I mean, again, if indeed this is the real Mount Sinai, then you would expect to find a fairly prominent cave on the face of the mountain that looks down toward the Eastern Valley. And so, you know, you have it. It's it's right there at the top. The Jabal Makla uh, essentially has sort of three peaks. You know, you've got a couple lower peaks, and then you've got the upper peak. And um, the lowest peak is all granite. And then just when you get up past that, um, it is where it becomes basalt. And so right at the top of that sort of lower third is this pretty large cave. I mean, it's about, it's only about 20 feet deep. It's not real, real deep, um, but it's it's very noticeable, you know, from down below. And it's quite a hike up, by the way. I mean, it's, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It took us hours to get up there. Um, it was it was hard, hard work. Um, part of it is because we were kind of working our way around the mountain from a different side, but even if you just went straight up, it would take, I'm going to say, you know, at least a good climber would still take you at least maybe an hour, hour and a half to get up. And it's a rugged mountain, you know, it's, you don't see it, but in between the rocks, there's all these thorns and, you know, desert kind of plants. And it's, you know, the, the mountain bites back and um, you've got to be always looking out for sand vipers and snakes and different things. You know, it's a, uh, there's no path, you know, you're not walking up there with hiking poles, you know, you're climbing large rocks and boulders and all that, and you got to bring enough water. So it was a tough thing. We got up there and um, took a little break, had some snacks, ate some dates, 
and then I sat out in the mouth of the cave and just sort of did a little update. But from the cave, you can look down and you can see Altar of Moses. Like that's how large it is. You can see it down there as this sort of hockey, hockey stick shaped um, configuration down there. And uh, so yeah, it's uh, that's another definitely another fascinating place. And you know, and it's it's got a sandy floor um, that you know Elijah could have very easily slept on and so forth. And and listen, and I firmly believe as well that Paul the Apostle, not just Elijah, but Paul sort of in imitation of Moses and in imitation of Elijah, actually uh, went and visited Mount Sinai as well. And for all we know, he could have very well stayed in that cave for some time. I agree. And I just was thinking to myself, the thought of actually knowing that you could be standing in the same place that the Apostle Paul the prophet Elijah and Moses, and underneath the mount, top of the mountain where God came down. I mean, I just that's a that's a spiritual high. I could, I mean, it just gets me excited just thinking about it. Um, what it must have been like just to be there and the thought of that. Um, try not to covet because I know that's not good, but I think this is acceptable coveting to want to see that um, in a good way. Uh, you know, I know you're got a book that's coming out. Um, about the true Mount Sinai, but it's not out yet. Could you give us an update of, of what's going on with that? Yeah, so I guess today is January 3rd. I should have them January 10th or 12th, so in about a week I'll have them. And so the title is uh, Mount Sinai in Arabia, uh, The True Location Revealed. And I've actually got a DVD or flash drive. I've got nine classes that I did on the material in the book. I actually already have that available. Um, but the book itself has a lot of pictures and, um, you know, I've, I've just, I've worked really hard to have a very easy to understand, um, presentation of all of the main critical points and, uh, arguments and so forth. And so anyone who has an interest in this, I think it's a good resource, all of the historical, uh, traditional, you know, arguments and so forth. And, um, I'm going to actually take them for free online, um, but uh, for those who actually want the book, the the, uh, the Kindle is already available, by the way. You can get the Kindle on Amazon, but if you want a signed copy of the book, you can go to my website at joelstrumpet.com, and I'll have plenty of those in about a week. Is the DVD series on the teaching, is that something that family, children-based? I mean, is that you said you wanted to be simplified, or is this something more of like an adult small group type? Yeah, adult teaching. small group, adult small group. Unfortunately, I try to simplify it, but I can tend to be a little bit of a long-winded, and I do get into some of the. You know, I try to I try to do stuff that a scholar would appreciate, but you know, my dad, who is a, a fisherman, could still understand. Um, it's probably a little bit above children, but um, yeah, nine classes, and actually, and I'll just say this too: two of the classes I I've just found out have audio some issues audio that are not great. So what I've done is I've actually put two of the classes up for free on my YouTube channel with the corrected audio. So if you want to get a little glimpse into what those classes are, there's two classes that are there for free on my YouTube channel. And, um, but it's a nine class. It's nine classes. Most of them are about 45 minutes to an hour plus each. And it's, yeah, it's more geared toward uh, adults. And we'll link to to your channel and everything in the show. And uh, Joel, what's the next up for this project? What, what's next on the radar? What do you guys got coming? Yeah. Um, so I've been working diligently on another book, and this is what I'm more excited about than anything else. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and this book, if all goes well, will be out and available this summer, uh, early summer. And the title is Sinai to Zion the untold story of the triumphant return of Jesus. And essentially what I'm showing is that the biblical story of the Exodus creates the template for the return of Jesus. Um, and it tells the story of the return of Jesus, unlike anything else in the Bible. In fact, you can actually know the full story in detail of the return of Jesus without ever turning to the New Testament. And yet it's, drawing from passages that a lot of people have not recognized as being messianic, as pertaining to the return of the Lord. And it just paints the most beautiful, amazing, detailed, specific story about the return of Jesus as sort of the greater Moses 
um, completing the greater exodus, if you will, and really the culmination of all of the covenants and promises of God. And it's, uh, I really think it's going to be just the, the, the most exciting, fascinating book that I've written yet. I'm, I'm personally more excited about it than anything else. I'm working diligently on it, but it just seems to keep taking longer because I, I keep going down these rabbit holes. But it's going to be a, really exciting. It's just the whole thing has got me excited about the Exodus. And then I started seeing all of these connections as I was studying Exodus. And it's just sort of the Lord's just dropping this on my lap. And I'm just so excited about it. Uh, well, I'm, I am too, because, folks, it's important that we understand that that Jesus was preached completely from the New Testament. It's all in there, and the New Testament is simply the unveiling of what has always been in there uh, for even a clear understanding, and I am excited to see what your research has pulled up on that. Joel, I know Joel's Trumpet, that's your main website. Can that, from there, can everybody link to find you on your podcast and everything else, or is there somewhere else that they should look for you at? Yeah, you can just go to joelstrumpet.com. You can go on YouTube and just type in Joel Richardson, and my channel pops up. You'll see my ministry logo. Um, but you can also just get there through my website and then uh, again I've got the store on my website if you know any books or materials it's all there Um, or you know if you want it on your doorstep tomorrow you can go to amazon.com as well Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on uh, with us here, and everybody will link to the things that Joel had mentioned in the show. And brother, God bless you in everything you're doing, and we hope to have you back uh, in the future. I'd love to hear about your book when it comes out, um, and, and also uh, hopefully you're doing a lot more. You're not just only talking about Mount Sinai. I know you do a lot of work into other countries, missionary work, especially into the Arabic country. So folks, please follow Joel. It's about spreading the gospel. Jesus is coming again. We need to share this good news. God bless you, brother, and we will talk to you again. This is Brother Frank and Joel Richardson on the Remnant Call saying to everybody, good night and shalom.